Amen. Amen. Did any of you get a chance the last couple weeks to catch some of the World Cup matches? Yeah. Uh, I could not get enough of it. There is just something about it, the, the high stakes, the urgency. You know, it happens just once every four years, and all these teams representing their countries. It seems like anybody has a chance to win all of that. just makes it so exciting. I also must admit, however, that I am not much of a soccer fan. In fact, I don't even like to play soccer. I don't usually find it enjoyable to watch. I don't even know the rules very well. I couldn't tell you. I still don't understand when somebody is offsides or not. Even though I've had so many friends try to explain it to me over and over again, I still don't get it. Normally, I would not choose to watch a game that could potentially end with nobody scoring any points. And that's how people leave it. But I watched the England-US game, which ended in 0-0, and it was riveting. I watched every second of it. So good. For about a month or so, every four years, I become an admirer of soccer. Or as many of you out there say, no, it's, it's football. Yes, right. I become an admirer of the game. But then there's people out there who watch the World Cup at a level way beyond the, the level at which I watch it. Not only do they know all the rules and understand them, they know most of the players, not just the ones that play for the country they're rooting for, but for like a lot of the different countries because they follow it year-round, all those different leagues that are happening that they play for. They have this loyalty, soccer fans do, to their team that is second to none. I mean, did you see some of the people that were at the game as you watched on the TV? I mean, they're crazy. They make like football fans, Raider fans seem mild just the way they're, they're decked out in all their gear and the colors, and, and they're so coordinated, and they're chanting and, and, and different cheers. It's amazing. But even those who aren't able to go to the game, you know, that have to stay home and watch it on their TV, they're cheering their hearts out. Um, they're, they're not just watching the game. They're watching the pregame and the postgame and highlights after the game and posting them on social media. They take vacation time from work just to watch the game. In fact, I know someone in this church who took, who made sure that his paternity leave lined up at the exact time of the World Cup so that he could watch his newborn baby and the World Cup. I, I won't tell you his name, but he may or may not be the husband of one of our pastoral staff members. Yeah. That kind of fan is at a whole nother level, right? They aren't just admirers. They are true followers of the game. An admirer is impressed. A follower is devoted. An admirer applauds. A follower is deeply committed. I say this because today we are getting to the final sections of the Sermon on the Mount. We will do, uh, today is our penultimate message, and, and next week will be our closing message on this series. And Jesus has taught so many things about being a citizen in the kingdom of, of God. And those that were there listening to the message seemed impressed 
by what Jesus had to say. In fact, in the very last verse of chapter 7, it says this, in Matthew 7, uh, uh, the very last verse, it says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. The crowds admired Jesus, which is not a bad thing per se, but I would wager that Jesus was longing for something deeper to happen in the hearts of those listening that went beyond just the level of amazement. Where, where somebody in the audience that day, in the crowd, would really internalize the truth he's been preaching about, living blessed regardless of circumstances, living beyond worry and beyond fear and not being a slave to sin or anger or the need to have more and more money and that they would realize the precious gift of prayer and forgiveness they have been giving given and, and that they would realize that they could live their life totally differently and that somebody in that crowd would start to internalize this and their heart would soften and stir and they would say, yes, I want this life. I am going to leave the crowd. I am no longer going to be just an admirer, but a true follower of Jesus. True discipleship. That's what Jesus is appealing for as he brings his sermon to a close. He doesn't want casual fans, but wholehearted followers. And then he describes a little bit in those last sections, a bit of a glimpse as to what that looks like to be a wholehearted follower. He says it is narrow. That's what it looks like to be my true disciple. Verse 13 of chapter seven says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. Now, I have heard people say sometimes as they quote this um, these verses from Jesus, that what he is getting at here is that it is somehow difficult or, or very hard to follow the ways of Jesus and very easy and convenient to follow the ways of the world. And, and maybe at some level that, that could be true, but I think we should be careful in, in trying to articulate that because Jesus, after all, says in Matthew 11 that my way is easy and my burden is light. I've also heard it used that this is some sort of process where we have got to try and reach that narrow gate by walking the narrow road through obedience to get there. And absolutely, we are called to a life of obedience in Christ. He mentions that many times in this very sermon on the mount. But my obedience can never be good enough to get me through that narrow gate. The gate and journey is narrow because the gate and journey is just Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate, he says, by which his sheep enter and find life and good pasture. I actually think Jesus' comment of the narrow gate and road is a profound statement of grace because it reminds us that there isn't anything else we can bring into the entrance or on the journey than just Jesus. It's narrow. You've got to drop the baggage, 
can't fit of your accomplishments, success, material goods, whatever else you could think of. It won't fit through the threshold. It is only by faith in Jesus that we enter in. True discipleship, he says, is narrow. But then Jesus warns, there will be people who will try to lead you astray, away from that narrow path. He says in verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They'd come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. That's quite the warning. Maybe we could just simply define a false prophet as someone trying to lead God's people astray by falsely speaking for God. And the text implies that they are doing this intentionally for their own benefit or to bring harm to others like wolves and a sheep. There are many places in Scripture, actually, where God warns us of false prophets. You can go through the Old Testament in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah and find lots of warnings there. This is not the only warning that Jesus will give in Matthew's gospel, especially when we get to chapter 24. He gives several of them. Paul will warn time and time again in, in the book of Acts and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and 2 Timothy to the New Testament church about false prophets. Peter will do so in his second letter. John will do in his first and second letter. And Jude is going to dedicate his short 25-verse book almost entirely to the subject. It is an important thing for us to be warned about. There are going to be some people that try to lead us astray from that narrow path with Jesus it is clear that this is an important issue to God. And why wouldn't it be? His desire is for you to have life and have it to the full. And that only comes on the narrow road with him. And anything that threatens that, he doesn't like that. He wants you to have that life of abundance. So he warns us over and over again in his word. But he doesn't just warn us, right? He gives us a recipe to know how to spot those imposters. Verse 16, it says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. I have to admit to you, I tried to force this uh, point today where I was trying to be clever and said that a disciple, true disciple is not just uh, lives a narrow life, but that they, that they are plant-based. I was trying to think of a creative way <laughs> to, to say that by your fruit and you'd be a good tree and it just fell flat, but I thought I would at least confess that to you today. So we're not gonna do that. But I, I mean, it, hey, if that helps you remember it, go for it. But that is the call that we have, is, is to be good fruit analyzers. Maybe to live plant, maybe that is a good point, live plant-based. Now, I think we have to be careful with this principle because I think we could easily take it too far and go into the territory of judgment, which Jesus just warned us about in the beginning of this chapter. I think it could also lead us to place too high a value on outward performance, which is the very thing Jesus is going to warn us about in the next section, right? But we, we know what Jesus is getting at here, right? Does the character of the person in question show evidence that the Holy Spirit is present 
and working in their life. We're certainly not perfect, but, but is there evidence that, that God's presence is with them and working on their heart? Are their actions flavored with things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? We will know them by their fruit. Discipleship, true discipleship is, I guess, for lack of a better term, plant-based. And then Jesus circles back to the crux of the matter. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Here, the contrast between admirer and follower is given pretty clearly. Jesus describes a person who has engaged in godly activities but failed to engage with God. I gotta tell you, family, this warning hit me hard this week. I found myself on my knees reflecting, am I guilty of this sometimes? Maybe not on purpose. I'm not intentionally trying to ignore God or be distant from him, but I certainly have been guilty of making ministry more important than time with the master. You ever struggle with that? Or, or insert anything else for time with the master. I then reflected on this in the context of my family. You know, I have my actions and habits at home as a husband and a father inspired my family to be followers of Jesus or merely just admirers of him. It's a lot of weight <laughs> on my heart this week. And then I began to think about all of you, my church family. Are my actions, and my, my, I don't know what kind of accent I said that with, are my actions and my habits here are all your actions and habits here leading us towards being followers of Jesus or just admirers? Are we guilty of gathering here to engage in godly activities and failing to engage with God? I like to think not. <laughs> I think that we are authentic followers of Jesus here at Cal Mesa Church and are trying the best we can to invite others to do the same. But maybe we needed a reminder today. Maybe we needed to recommit to what really our mission is, to lead people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to give you a picture of the difference between admiration and full devotion by using a word that sounds kind of funny. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you've heard it before, a phenomenalist. Do you know what that word means? An acrobat who walks on a cable of great height, a tightrope walker, in other words. And maybe some of you have heard this illustration. I know many preachers have heard it. Maybe you have told it a few times, or it's maybe even been told here in a children's story. But I want to talk to you about one of the most famous phenomenalists of all time. He was at the peak of his game about 150 years ago, Charles Blondin. Again, maybe you have heard of him. Blondin came to the United States from overseas and was fascinated, obsessed actually with Niagara Falls. He wanted to cross Niagara Falls walking on a rope. 
He actually strung a hemp cord 1,100 feet across and 160 feet above the falls. And he said, I'm going to go across it. And thousands of people turned out. He was quite the showman, and he, he did it just flawlessly. And, and you can imagine all the, all the drama and, and in that moment as people watched life and death, no safety net, and he, he crossed over it. All the people cheered, took pictures of him. He came back another day, and he thought he would bring a camera and take pictures of the crowd taking pictures of him as he was walking on. He came back another day, and he, he, the, the story goes that he had a stove that he brought, and he cooked an omelet that he handed to somebody afterwards while he was on the rope, did some of the most amazing things. But then he came back one day, another time, with a wheelbarrow. And he got up on that rope and he walked that wheelbarrow all the way across that tightrope. And the crowd was amazed again. They cheered and oohed and awed. And then he went to the crowd and he said, now I I'm going to do this again. Can I have a volunteer of somebody to sit inside the wheelbarrow <laughs> as I walk it across? That crowd that cheered so loud, that oohed and odd, they were silent. Thousands of them. Nobody volunteered. Well, there was this one man. His name was Harry Colcord. And he had a relationship with Blondin. He knew him. He spent time with him. He worked with him. He had seen Blondin do this act a hundred times. He slowly got out from the crowd, got in the wheelbarrow, and inch by inch, step by step, they rode across, walked across the falls. They make it to the other side, and of course the crowd goes crazy again. But no one in that crowd got into the wheelbarrow. Everybody applauded Charles Blondin, but the only one who trusted him that walked in with him, that got in with him and walked together with him was Mr. Colcord. It was a walk that neither of them would ever forget. Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount and everyone was amazed. But Jesus was not interested in impressing the crowd. Jesus doesn't go up to people in his word and say, admire me. No, he goes up to them and says, come, follow me. Get in the wheelbarrow and let me take you on this incredible journey that you'll never forget. This life of abundance, life to the full and everlasting. He is extending that invitation to you today. What will your response be? I pray that it is a resounding yes. This is the life I need and want. Today I am leaving the crowd. I am no longer just an admirer. I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Lord, you are the matchless king, prince of peace, the one who has brought love and grace into our lives. So, Lord, today we want to respond to the way in which you came down to us by us choosing to be your wholehearted followers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.